Thank you for tuning in to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. It's our real privilege to come into your home with this message from God's Word. Today we're going to begin a study entitled Mystery Babylon. Let's read a passage from the 17th chapter of the book of Revelation. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. This passage from Revelation chapter 17, verses 3 through 5, introduces us to a subject that receives a great deal of attention in Scripture. That subject is Mystery Babylon. Chapters 17 and 18 of the book of Revelation records the prophetic record of the final destruction of what seems to be two separate entities, both of which Scripture calls Babylon. Babylon is mentioned more often in the Bible than any other city with the single exception of Jerusalem. It's a very prominent name in both Revelation chapter 17 and Revelation chapter 18. This name must be important. Therefore, it's absolutely necessary that we grasp its significance if we're going to have a clear understanding of this part of God's word. The word Babylon seems to refer to, first, a religious system in Revelation chapter 17, and then to a political system in Revelation chapter 18. It would seem that to properly understand the interpretation and significance of the events in Revelation chapters 17 and 18, one would have to know the origin and the background of this dual system that God calls Mystery Babylon. We could go even beyond that. In order to really understand the history of this post-flood world and the present world situation that seems about to plunge this post-flood world cosmos into the drama of the end of the age, one should be knowledgeable about the world system called Mystery Babylon. The dual-natured political and religious system of Mystery Babylon actually emerged from the early civilization of the post-flood world. The very first man-centered civilization present on this planet spread from the exiles of the Garden of Eden when Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden according to Genesis chapter 4 and verse 16. It was there that Cain built a city and called it after the name of his son Enoch. The pre-flood civilization and cultural system that resulted from this beginning was Cainitic in origin, in character, and in destiny. It was a totally materialistic, man-centered civilization. This civilization perished in the great flood except for a strain transmitted into this world by the survivors on the ark. Very soon after the flood, another Canaanitic-type civilization sprang up. A large portion of the technical and cultural achievements of that first world had been transplanted into the early post-flood world. Ham was the father of Cush, and Cush was the father of Nimrod, the one whose very name means rebel. It's not exaggeration to say that Nimrod was one of the most historically important men who ever lived. 
Nimrod was the very epitome of that failure of all natural men that causes them to fall short of the glory of God. He was completely wrapped up in his pride, his self-boastfulness, his desire for hero worship. In his book, Antiquities of the Jews, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, says, Nimrod persuaded mankind not to ascribe their happiness to God, but to think that his own excellency was the source of it. And he soon changed things into tyranny, thinking that there was no other way to wean men from God and fear of him than by making them rely on his own power. And so as we go back into the dim twilight of post-flood world history as recorded in Scripture, we learn that the founder of Babel, that is, Babylon, was Nimrod. And we have a brief account of his unholy achievements in the 10th chapter of the book of Genesis. And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. The beginning or origin of Nimrod's kingdom was Babel in the land of Shinar. According to information that's been preserved through pagan records, and by the way, the secular world usually considers these records as pure legend, Nimrod, who was known in Babylonian lore as Ninus, or the sun, taught men to build walls around cities to protect themselves from wild beasts. Men of the early post-flood world were overwhelmed by the personality, wisdom, and leadership ability of this man. Therefore, a great majority of the early population soon accepted him as a great leader. They considered him as a benefactor to all mankind. This gave him the opportunity that he needed to exert his influence and to lead his followers away from God. Going out in his own strength from the presence of the Lord, Nimrod, contrary to the express command of God, actively sought to gather the population of the world under his personal leadership. He actively opposed and defied the command that God had given through Noah in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 1, that command to spread abroad upon the face of the earth and to fill it. His great influence and power permitted him to persuade the people of the world to join together in building a city and a tower which should reach unto heaven. Now, this expression doesn't mean that they were building a tower by which they thought they could climb into heaven. Heaven, the place of the immediate presence of God, was the last place these rebels desired to be. This tower was built in defiance to heaven. The structure was intended to be a tower of great renown, a tower that rose to a great height on the plain of Shinar. It was to be recognized as a temple, a rallying center, for those who had been dissuaded from walking in obedience to the word of Jehovah. Actually, the phrase, reach unto heaven, in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 4, figuratively means a very high tower. It also means a tower to oppose the God of heaven because it was there that the men were to create a name for themselves. The Tower of Babel was actually a ziggurat. The ziggurats of the ancient Mesopotamian valley were heathen temples which were devoted to prostitution in the name of religion. Both priests and priestesses served in this capacity in the Mesopotamian ziggurats. This is the type of tower that Nimrod and his associates were building as a world center.
the ziggurat of Babel bore the mark of a counterfeit from the very beginning. Speaking of the rebellious tower builders, Scripture tells us they had brick for stone and slime had they for mortar. A counterfeit, an imitation of that which is real and true, is what has characterized the satanic system of this world, which God's word calls Mystery Babylon, ever since that time. There is deep significance to the statement that they had brick for stone and slime for mortar. Brick is imitation, man-made stone. Slime, or bitumen, is a man-made adhesive. Only God can make real stone. In Scripture, stone represents that which comes from God. God is jealous that this spiritual symbol be reserved to his usage, that it not be polluted by man. We see this symbol brought out quite sharply in Exodus chapter 20, verses 24 and 25. Jehovah God had just given to Moses the law, the Ten Commandments. And as God continued speaking directly to the prophet of the Exodus, we hear these words, An altar of earth thou shalt make unto me, and shalt sacrifice thereon thy burnt offerings, and thy peace offerings, thy sheep, and thine oxen. In all places where I record my name, I will come unto thee, and I will bless thee. And if thou wilt make me an altar of stone, thou shalt not build it of hewn stone. For if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. God would not allow the children of Israel to build altars of anything but natural stone. Natural stone comes directly from God, and natural stone represents the work of God. God will not allow his works to be polluted by the works of men. If man so much as placed a tool upon the natural stone, then the stone was no longer acceptable for the construction of an altar to God. In type, the altar of burnt sacrifice represents the Lord Jesus Christ and his special atoning work of the cross. This work was of God, not of man. It's through this work of God that man approaches God, not through any works of man's hands. In the New Testament, God continues to use the symbol of natural stone, untouched by human workmen, as a symbol of his work in making those redeemed by the blood of his Son acceptable for heavenly purposes. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5 we read, Ye also, as living stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Christians are here referred to as living stones, fitly framed together for a habitation of God. That spiritual building so formed of living stones is the church of this inter-advent age. The person who has been spiritually reborn is like a stone formed entirely by a work of God and put into a building that is a suitable habitation for God. The building formed of such unified living stones is also a fit altar upon which spiritual sacrifices may be offered unto God. Thus the altar of unhewn stones built by the children of Israel is a picture of the spiritual structure of this age. In a true work of God there is no brick for stone and slime for mortar. But what did these followers of Nimrod do? They used man-made stone and man-made adhesive. Such a unified body, entirely of human origin, brings to mind several things in the world today. First, it reminds us of liberalism in the so-called ecumenical Christian church of our day. Modern apostate churches 
teach that if you do certain things, such as submit to church ordinances and place your name on the church register, then you're a Christian. Such man-made Christians are not living stones formed by work of God. They are bricks, counterfeit stones formed by the efforts of man. And their unity in a so-called church is a man-made Babylonian unity. It's not the true unity of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Liberal Christianity uses brick for stone and slime for mortar to form that ecumenical building or tower that is not of God. I see that my time for today is almost gone. We'll continue our study of Mystery Babylon on the next broadcast. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. We've just begun a study of Mystery Babylon and we'll be continuing this study for the next several broadcasts. Let's look once again at those words found in Genesis chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach into heaven, and let us make us a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. In these verses, God describes to us those building materials that were used by the founders of Mystery Babylon. Brick is synthetic stone, and slime, or bitumen, is synthetic adhesive. Both of these things speak of the works of man, done by man's will and in man's energy. The structure of the Babylonian system is built of man-made material held together with an artificial man-made unity. We have ample examples of the Babylonian structure both in the so-called Christian church of today and in the present political structure of the world. Modern liberal Christendom, which today is fully involved in an ecumenical movement toward a unity that is of man and not of the Holy Spirit, teach that if an individual does certain things, such as submit to church ordinances and place his name on the church membership rolls, then he's a Christian. One who responds to such teaching becomes a brick in a Babylonian structure, not a living stone that can be suitably framed together into a habitation of God. Even as the tower builders of Babel used brick for stone, so a major part of the professing Christian churches of today use brick for stone in their building of their congregations. And, as we might expect, the liberalism and doctrine of these very churches offers a man-made unity of social action gospel, slime for mortar, rather than the true unity of the Holy Spirit of God. Liberalism would force us all into one human mold, a brick mold designed of men energized by Satan. That which seals true Christians together is the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. But those without the Holy Spirit depend on an adhesive of human origin to preserve their unity, social gospel, and social action. This is necessary to maintain their structure because the Holy Spirit does not unite that which is false. Those without Jesus Christ have to produce a substitute unity. Our present-day ecumenical movement is a man-made program which can only produce a man-made unity. It's Babylonianism. 
and they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. We also have a growing system of Babylonianism in the political movements of our day. The United Nations organization is an exact parallel to the building of the Tower of Babel. It's man's effort of the present time toward the building of a one-world kingdom. The languages of the peoples, though different, are made a oneness in understanding through interpreters and modern electronic communication instruments. The thought and intent behind the political structure of the United Nations is to reverse God's judgment on Babel. The nations of the world are seeking to bring about their own particular brand of cosmos, that is, order, out of the world's chaos, that is, confusion. This artificial unity is entirely a work of man energized by Satan in direct opposition to the express will of God. Again, this is Babylonianism. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. When the people of Genesis 11 attempted to build their tower, God intervened. His intervention is described in Genesis chapter 11, verses 5 through 8. And Jehovah came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And Jehovah said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they began to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So Jehovah scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Jehovah intervened by changing the languages and thus bringing confusion on the people of the early post-flood world. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because Jehovah did there confound the language of the earth, and from thence did Jehovah scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. The confusion, the chaos that began at Babel, has continued through the entire social order of the post-flood world under present Gentile domination. We now have to turn to the ancient lore of the Babylonians themselves if we're to continue to delve into those historical events of the ancient post-flood world that are so important to the world system of our day. And when we do this, we find that the wife of Ninus, the son, or Gilgamesh, as Nimrod was known in Babylonian literature, was none other than the infamous Semiramis I. Our secular historians of today consider Semiramis I, the queen of ancient Babylonian empire, to be nothing but a prehistoric myth. The World Book Encyclopedia refers to her as follows. Semiramis was a mythical queen of Assyria. She supposedly founded the ancient city of Babylon and conquered Persia and Egypt. Semiramis was the daughter of a Syrian youth and a fish goddess. Her mother left her, and she was fed by doves. Semiramis grew to be a beautiful woman and married King Ninus of Assyria. She became queen when he died and won many battles, but her son overthrew her. Herodotus mentions a Semiramis who was queen of Babylon in the 700s B.C. Most of the sketchy information mentioned in this quotation is not myth but fact, and documentation of such fact is available to those who are willing to delve into the subject. The Semiramis mentioned by Herodotus is not Semiramis I, however. 
That Semiramis was a later queen who also played a part in Babylonian history. The system of idolatry and pagan worship that had its beginning at the time of the building of the Tower of Babel, only a few centuries this side of the flood, was very much alive and well at the time of Jeremiah. The children of Israel had, to a great extent, succumbed to the Babylonian mystery rites and their system of lustful worship. The practice of such abominations by God's chosen people is what prompted these words of God which are found in Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 17 and 18. Seest thou not what they do in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, and the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead their dough to make cakes to the queen of heaven, and to pour out drink offerings unto other gods, that they may provoke me to anger. It was largely because of such idolatrous practices in their own land as are mentioned in these verses that God permitted his people to be carried off into, captive, into captivity into Babylon and thus drink deeply of the golden cup in the hand of the deified Babylonian queen of heaven. We find verification of this in Jeremiah chapter 44 and verse 25. Thus saith the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, Ye and your wives have both spoken with your mouths, and fulfilled with your hand, saying, We will surely perform our vows that we have vowed, to burn incense to the Queen of Heaven, and to pour out drink offerings unto her. Ye will surely accomplish your vows. Semiramis was the originator of the Babylonian mystery religion, and she was the first high priestess of this system of idolatry. Although secular historians consider Semiramis as only a mythical queen of early Babylon, the Babylonian mysteries can be traced back to this one who was most definitely a literal figure in ancient history. This depraved woman lived only a few centuries after the flood, and she's known to have impressed upon the followers of Nimrod the concepts of idolatrous worship conceived in her own depraved and polluted mind. The religious system that Semiramis founded included many secret rites, among which stood very prominently acts of consecrated prostitution. Priestesses and even priests were kept within the Babylonian ziggurats, that is, the tower-like pagan temples, for the very purpose of prostitution in the religious worship. This type of religious service, of course, appeals to the flesh, and Semiramis had no problem in recruiting practitioners to her Babylonian cult. The Babylonian mystery spread like wildfire, and the practices originating at the time of Semiramis and Nimrod spread rapidly among the peoples of the early post-flood world. The grosser aspects of the mystery system became the culture of Sodom and Gomorrah, and as scripture tells us, it became necessary for God to totally annihilate those wicked cities during the time of Abraham. The practices of this system had fully flowered among the Canaanites at the time of Moses and Joshua, and it was this that prompted God to order his chosen people to totally exterminate these early occupants of Palestine. But God's instructions were not carried out, and the pollution did spread to the children of Israel. It was the practice of the Babylonian mystery rites in the northern kingdom of Israel that led God to declare in Amos chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, Thus saith the Lord, 
For three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they sold the righteous for silver, and the poor for a pair of shoes, that pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor, and turn aside the way of the meek. And a man and his father will go in unto the same maid to profane my holy name. Early Babylon became the source and fountainhead of idolatry, and the Babylonian mystery religion became the mother of every heathen and pagan system in subsequent world history. The mystery religion that originated at the time of the Tower of Babel spread in various modified forms throughout the whole earth, and it is with us today. This religious system is the mystery of iniquity which ran rampant in Paul's day and of which he remarks in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work. A significant part of the Babylonian system has grafted into the practice of the professing Christian church. Babylonianism will have its fullest development after the true church and the restraining ministry of the Holy Spirit has departed and the Babylon of Revelation holds sway. Once again, my time is almost gone. We'll continue with our study of Mystery Babylon on the next broadcast. Thank you for tuning in to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. It's so good to once again greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. We're involved in a study of Mystery Babylon, as the term is used in the scriptures. I'd like to open today's study by reading from the 8th chapter of the book of Ezekiel. He said also unto me, Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations that they do. Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north, and behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then said he unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations than these. Nimrod and his queen Semiramis, the leaders in the building of the Tower of Babel, were founders of the system scripture refers to as Mystery Babylon. The religious and political aspects of this dual-natured system are intertwined. The Babylonian mystery religion claimed that adherents who faithfully climbed the ladder of the mysteries by practice and by sequential initiation into higher and higher orders would gain the highest possible wisdom and illumination. Because of this enlightenment that came directly from the gods, they would have the ability to know divine secrets, and eventually they too would become gods. Therefore, the early leaders of the system were considered to have passed into the, the divine state on death, and it was to these early leaders that later worship was directed. The real plan behind this system was formed in the mind of Satan, not in the mind of any man. However, Nimrod and Semiramis became the willing tools of Satan and it was through these early characters that the system came into the post-flood world. The basic purpose of Nimrod's cult was to control the whole world and all the human population on the earth. Each adherent to the system went through a process that we know today as brainwashing. To practice the Babylonian rites, it was necessary to drink of mysterious beverages which were of an intoxicating nature. 
These mysterious beverages, at least in part, were composed of wine, honey, water, and flour. As a part of the indoctrination into the system, each adherent was required to forsake all outside ties of patriotism and moral ethics. He was to be kept in blind ignorance of real truth, and he was made to act in willful obedience to all of his superiors within the cult. A high priest or priestess was placed over groups of members, and the word of this leader became law. The member of the cult was no longer a Hamite, a Japhethite, or a Shemite, but instead he was a member of a mystical brotherhood. The leaders of this brotherhood controlled the lives and fortunes of all subordinate members. Semiramis, the original queen of ancient Babylon, and the one worshipped as the queen of heaven after her death, was a paragon of uncontrollable lust and licentiousness. She was worshipped as Rhea, the mother of the gods. In later Ephesus, she was known as Diana. To the Greeks, she was Aphrodite. To the Romans, she was Venus. To modern man, she's known by many names. She's become Mother Nature, and in our children's stories, Mother Goose. Within the religious rites conducted by Semiramis, prostitution was compulsory. Orgiastic rites were observed to proclaim days of worship to the Babylonian gods. Semiramis outlived her husband Ninus, or Nimrod, by a number of years. In fact, ancient lore seems to teach that Nimrod was executed by Shem and his descendants, who had remained faithful to Jehovah. Due to her licentious way of living, Semiramis gave birth to a son several years after the death of Nimrod. Apparently building on the primeval promise of Jehovah that a coming seed of woman was to be the salvation of humankind, Semiramis claimed that this son was miraculously conceived. This was Satan's counterfeit of the virgin birth, and the event took place approximately 3,000 years before our Lord's actual birth at Bethlehem. Semiramis named this son Tammuz. She claimed that Tammuz was the son of God, and he was hailed as a savior of his people. He was recognized within the Babylonian religious system as a messiah and as the fulfillment of the promised seed of woman. Tammuz was also known as Baal, and this name actually means Lord or Master. Within the pagan cultures, idols were built that pictured a mother with a babe in her arms. This representation pictured Semiramis and Tammuz. Some of these, dating back to many centuries before the birth of Christ, are still in existence and are considered as representations of Mary and Jesus in professing Christian groups today. It was the worship of this false son of God, Tammuz, that the weeping was directed in the scripture from Ezekiel chapter 8 verses 13 through 15 that I used to open this broadcast. Similar worship of Tammuz under the name of Christ is often carried on in professing Christian churches today. The origin of the legend of the mother and child that is today hailed by the world as the Christmas story was not in Mary and Jesus, but rather in Semiramis and Tammuz. The legend of the mother and child was incorporated in Babylonian religious rites thousands of years before the birth of Christ. This legend has been repeated in all the various pagan religions. It's found very prominent in the religions of the American Indians. 
And of course the ancestors of the American Indians migrated across the Aleutian land bridge after the Tower of Babel, but many centuries before the birth of Christ. Thus was introduced the Babylonian mystery of the mother and child. This is a form of idolatry that is older than any other known to man. This early counterfeit of the virgin birth was Satan's effort to delude mankind with an imitation so like the truth of God that mankind would not know the true seed of woman when he came in fullness of time. From early Babylon, the worship of the mother and the child spread to the ends of the post-flood earth. In Babylonia, the origin of the legend, the two were known as Semiramis and Tammuz, but they were soon better known under the names Rhea, which means the great goddess mother, and Bacchus, which means the lamented one. In Egypt, the mother and child were worshipped under the names of Isis and Osiris. In India, even in modern times, they were Isi and Ishwara. In Asia Minor, the pair were Sibel and Deoius. In pagan Rome, they were Venus and Cupid. In Greece, they were Aphrodite and Eros, or Pan. By the way, the ancient Greek pagan religion is the source of the fairy tale character that we know today as Peter Pan, the eternal boy. Even in Tibet and China, the characters of the mother and child were well known and worshipped devoutly. The early Jesuit missionaries were astonished when they entered heathen China and found that statues of the mother and child were as devoutly honored there as they were in papal Rome. Xing Mu, the holy mother in China, was represented with a child in her arms and with a halo around her head, just as though the image were fabricated by an artist of the papal system. There is irrefutable evidence that the honoring and worship of a mother and child did not originate in Christianity. Pagans the world over held a reverence for a holy mother and her demigod son thousands of years before our Lord Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. Notice the parallels between the development of the Babylonian system of worship of the mother and child and some of the distortions of Christianity that are prevalent in our day. First, it was from the fact that Semiramis bore the son Tammuz, supposedly a divine being, that she derived all of her glory and her claims to deification. This is exactly the path that's been followed in certain branches of professing Christianity. Mary, the mother of Jesus, has been lifted up to a position of essential deification by virtue of the fact that she's the mother of the humanity of a divine person, not because of any inherent merit of her own. However, once the lifting up was accomplished, then the personage of the divine mother soon overshadowed and eclipsed the glory of the Son. This is precisely what took place in the Babylonian mystery cults. The queen mother, Semiramis, was deified by virtue of the fact that she bore Tammuz. But when deification was accomplished, then Rhea became the supreme deity, the goddess mother. So certain branches of Christianity pay homage to none other than Semiramis or Rhea under her Christianized name of Mary. Have you ever considered what was taking place in the scene of the women weeping for Tammuz reported by Ezekiel in the scripture that I read at the opening of this program? Nimrod, 
the leader of the rebellion at the, of the Tower of Babel met a violent death. Now when this mighty hero was suddenly cut off in the midst of his glory, it was a great shock to those he led. So the time after his death, but before his supposed reincarnation, was a time of great sorrow among the Babylonian devotees. It became customary to observe a season of weeping for the old god each year, beginning on the anniversary of the day of Nimrod's death. This traditional weeping was supposedly climaxed by the birth or reincarnation of the young god. That season of weeping for Tammuz has been brought into the Christian tradition in the form of the season of Lent observed just before Easter each year. There is no biblical authority to lament for Christ in this way. Actually, great numbers of Christians annually spend a portion of their time weeping for Tammuz. Babylon has imposed her mysteries on the Christian faith. She is still with us today. I see that my time is almost gone. Be with me on the next broadcast as we continue to consider the subject, Mystery Babylon. I'm so glad of this opportunity to again come into your home with another broadcast of The Bible Stands. I'm speaking on the subject of Mystery Babylon, the ancient religious and political system of the pagan world. Let's read verses 20 and 21 from the 18th chapter of 1 Kings. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel, and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If Jehovah be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. This question, directed by the prophet Elijah to the people of apostate Israel so many years ago, needs to be directed to the people of apostate Christianity today. Each day, millions of people in the United States alone engage in a form of pagan worship that goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel itself. A great number of these Baal worshipers are professing Christians, and yet, either in their ignorance or in their complacency, they engage in a practice that is thoroughly condemned in Scripture as abhorrent to God. I'm speaking specifically of the study and practice of the religion of astrology. Let's for just a moment turn once again to that super ziggurat that was being constructed by Nimrod and his cohorts as the Tower of Babel. On top of that ziggurat structure, as well as on top of all the later Babylonian ziggurats, there was an observatory called a zodiac where the priests of the Babylonian mystery religion would consult the stars for their prognostication of future events. The zodiac of each ziggurat was the very center of the cult where the sun, the moon, and the stars were said to be deities and were therefore worshipped. Babylon and the Tower of Babel were the origins of the system of astrology that has swept our modern world in the last two decades. In spite of this, millions of people right here in the United States, a supposedly Christian nation, grab up their morning newspapers, not because they're so interested in the news of the day, but rather because they're anxious to see what Gene Dixon or some other astrological prognosticator has to reveal about their daily horoscopes. Just look at the tremendous increase in interest in astrology these last few years. 
Many parents of today have allowed their children to grow up on a diet of astrological signs and prognostications, thinking that this is but a harmless pastime. Just enter a typical teenager's room, even in many so-called Christian homes, and note how the walls are plastered with the various signs of the zodiac. Many families today own sets of dishes, even fine china, that are imprinted with the various astrological signs. One of the first questions that's asked when two people have just met for the first time is, under what sign were you born? And behind this question lies the idea that the course of the relationship between these two people is determined by the astrological signs of their birth. And this is not just in the United States, it's worldwide. It was against the very practice of Babylonianism that are rampant in the world today that the Lord issued an emphatic warning to Israel just before they entered the Promised Land. They had left the devilish system of Babylonianism in Egypt, that land that was so bound up with the astrological gods. And now they were on their way to be surrounded by pagans that, if possible, were even more deeply immersed in the Babylonian mysteries than were the Egyptians. God issued his warning through his servant Moses, and it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 19 and 24. And lest thou lift up thine eyes unto heaven, and when thou seest the sun and the moon and the stars, even all the host of heaven, shouldest be driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord thy God hath divided unto all nations unto the whole heaven. For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. Isaiah tells Babylon of God's great end-time judgment upon her in these words from chapter 47, verses 11 through 13. Therefore shall evil come upon thee. Thou shalt not know from whence it ariseth, and mischief shall fall upon thee. Thou shalt not be able to put it off. And desolation shall come upon thee suddenly, which thou shalt not know. Stand now with thine enchantments, and with the multitude of thy sorceries, wherein thou hast labored from thy youth. If so be that thou shalt be able to profit, if so be thou mayest prevail. Thou art wearied in the multitude of thy counsels. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, the monthly prognosticators, Stand up and save thee from the things that shall come upon thee. The judgment of which God warns is still to be fulfilled. The Babylonian mystery religion has been forced underground in many parts of the world for centuries, but in our day it has once again fully emerged. Could God's judgment be far in the future? And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Revelation chapter 17 opens with these words describing the Apostle John's invitation to view God's judgment upon the mystery religion that God's word designates as Mystery Babylon. It's rather surprising to find out 
that many things in modern professing Christianity are not of Christian origin at all, but rather are parts of the Babylonian mystery system in which worship was directed to Tammuz, the false messiah, and to Semiramis, his mother, the queen of heaven. But as I've tried to bring out in this study, the evidence is overwhelming. Many of our so-called Christian traditions are Babylonian in origin, in nature, and in direction. The Babylonian religious system had many mystery rites, as well as many immoral practices of worship. The Babylonian mystery cult was the origin of the custom of sprinkling holy water. Virgins were brought to the Babylonian ziggurats, that is, temples, and were dedicated to serve the Babylonian gods as religious prostitutes. The legend of the mother and child became the very center of Babylonian religious lore. The mother, representing Semiramis, was pictured as the queen of heaven with the babe, Tammuz, in her arms. The rites of Babylonian worship... But, as I've tried to bring out in this study, the evidence is overwhelming. Many of our so-called Christian traditions are Babylonian in origin, in nature, and in direction. The Babylonian religious system had many mystery rites, as well as many immoral practices of worship. The Babylonian mystery cult was the origin of the custom of sprinkling holy water. Virgins were brought to the Babylonian ziggurats, that is, temples, and were dedicated to serve the Babylonian gods as religious prostitutes. The legend of the mother and child became the very center of Babylonian religious lore. The mother, representing Semiramis, was pictured as the queen of heaven with the babe, Tammuz, in her arms. The rites of Babylonian worship were secret. Only the initiated were permitted to know its mysteries. As advocates climbed to higher and higher levels within the system, deeper mysteries were revealed. The Babylonian system was Satan's effort to delude mankind with an imitation so like the truth of God that mankind would not know the true seed of woman when he came in the fullness of time. From the original Tower of Babel, the mystery religion of Nimrod and Semiramis spread over all of the populated world. Everywhere the symbols were the same, and everywhere the cult of the mother and child became the popular religious system. The worship of the pair was carried on with the most disgusting and immoral practices. The image of the Queen of Heaven with the babe in her arms was seen in all parts of the world. The names were different because the languages were different, but the basic religious cult was the same, and all forms of this cult spring from Mother Babylon. Linked with the central mystery of the mother and child were a great number of lesser mysteries. The hidden meaning of each rite and image was known only to the central initiates. But the outward forms of worship were practices by all the people over which the system held sway. Among these lesser mysteries were doctrines of purgatorial purification after death. Salvation was by the practice of certain sacraments. There was a system of practicing priests, and these priests were able to offer priestly absolution.
recipients were sprinkled with holy water for cleansing and for blessing. Round cakes imprinted with the Babylonian Tau, the symbol of Tammuz, were offered to the Queen of Heaven. Jeremiah mentions this practice over and over again in his book. The practice of weeping for Tammuz for a period of 40 days before his supposed reincarnation became widespread. To Semiramis, the egg was sacred since it was supposed to symbolize her preservation and reincarnation. Also, the evergreen tree was chosen as the symbol of Tammuz. It was set up to honor his birth, which occurred at about the time of the winter solstice, that is, about December 25th. During the festival of the winter solstice, a boar's head was eaten in memory of the conflict of Ninus, or Nimrod, who was, according to legend, slain by a wild boar. Tammuz was accepted as re the reincarnation of his father, or his supposed father, Nimrod. The Yule log was burned to represent the destruction of the dead god. Does this sound like practicing Christianity? It's not biblical Christianity, but it is what will be left when Christ calls his true church out of this world. Once again, I see that my time is almost gone. We'll continue with this study of Mystery Babylon on the next broadcast exactly where we leave off today. Greetings in the wonderful name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. We're continuing our study of Mystery Babylon, Satan's world system of this present age. Let's read verses 2 through 5 of Jeremiah chapter 10. Thus saith the Lord, Learn not the way of the heathen, and be not dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the heathen are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vain. For one cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workman with the axe. They deck it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers, that it move not. They are upright as the palm tree, but speak not. They must needs be born, because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither also is it in them to do good. On the last several broadcasts, I've pointed out that the ancient Babylonian mysteries are still very much a part of the culture and religion of the world today. Even within professing Christianity, we find that a great number of church customs, as well as a large part of our church liturgy, are actually traceable to the ancient Babylonian mystery cults. All of our so-called Christian holidays have their origin outside of Christianity. This includes Christmas and Easter, along with all the so-called minor Christian holidays. The entire world still observes a holiday season that purports to honor the birthday of the true Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered how it came about that that holiday is connected with December 25th? There's not a direct word in the scriptures about the precise day of our Lord's birth or even about the time of year that he was born. However, though scripture does not designate the exact day or even the time of the year of our Lord's birth, the facts given show that it was definitely not December 25th. Joseph Mead, 
the distinguished Bible scholar of the 18th century, once published a very decisive argument on this subject. One of his concluding opinions is worth quoting. Quote, At the birth of Christ, every woman and child was to go to be taxed at the city whereto they belonged, whether some had long journeys, especially for women with child, and children to travel in. Therefore, Christ could not be born in the depth of winter. Again, at the time of Christ's birth, the shepherds lay abroad, watching with their flocks in the nighttime. But this was not likely to be in the middle of the winter. And if any shall think the winter wind was not so extreme in these parts, let him remember the words of Christ in the gospel. Pray that your flight not be in the winter. If the winter was so bad a time to flee in, it seems no fit time for shepherds to lie in the fields in and women and children to travel in." Unquote. At the time that the angel announced our Lord's birth to the shepherds of Bethlehem, they were watching over their flocks by night in the open fields. Now there's no doubt that the climate of Palestine is not so severe as the climate in many parts of our own country. But in spite of this, it does get extremely cold, especially at night, beginning the last of November and extending through February. It was not the custom of the shepherds of Judea to watch their flocks in the open field later than the end of October. The purpose for watching over the flocks by night was so that the shepherds would be present to help the ewes during the lambing season. The fact that the shepherds were in the field at night places the birth of our Lord during a lambing season, and we should expect that God would have chosen such a time to bring the true Lamb of God into the world. There were actually two lambing seasons in Palestine. One of these was in the spring during March and April. The other was in the fall during September and October. It seems incredible that the world should have chosen December 25th as the date of our Lord's birth, since that date seems to have been the least likely time that could possibly have been selected. Why was December 25th chosen then? Is it possible that this date is of great significance to the Babylonian mystery system? Could it be that this date actually was the birth date of the child of that original mother-child combination that was so important to the Babylonian system of worship? Let me point out that it's not only possible, but there is significant evidence to point to the conclusion that the actual birth of Tammuz did occur very close to our present December 25th. The birth that's celebrated at our so-called Christmas festival is not the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ at all. It's the birth of Tammuz, the false messiah of the Babylonian mystery cult. Babylonianism is not dead. Within all of professing Christianity, no such festival as Christmas was ever heard of until after the beginning of the 4th century AD. How was it then that the organized church, headquartered in Rome, brought the observance of Christmas, by the way, the name comes from two words, Christ's Mass, into professing Christianity, and how was the date of the celebration fixed on December 25th? Again, let me point out that it's a matter of fact, not opinion or interpretation, that long before the 4th century A.D. and long before the event of the birth of Christ, 
a festival was celebrated among all pagan peoples at that precise time of year. The festival honored the birth of the son of the Babylonian Queen of Heaven. The celebration was in honor of the reincarnation of the slain Babylonian god Ninus or Nimrod in the person of Tammuz, the supposedly miraculously conceived son of Semiramis, who was the surviving wife of Nimrod and the female head of the Babylonian mystery cult. The child, Tammuz, who was considered simultaneously to be the husband and the son of this queen of heaven, was born about the time of the winter solstice, that is, the shortest day of the year, which occurred on or about our present December 25th. It's clearly brought out in surviving Egyptian literature that Osiris, the son of Isis, which was the Egyptian title for the Babylonian Queen of Heaven, was born at this very time, about the time of the winter solstice. One of the very names by which Christmas is popularly known today is further proof of the pagan origin of this holiday. We often hear Christmas referred to as Yule Day. Yule is the Chaldee, that is, the Babylonian name for an infant or a little child. The 25th of December was called by the pagan Anglo-Saxon ancestors of our English culture by the very name Yule Day, or, that is, the Child's Day. The night that preceded it was called Mother Night. This was a fact of Anglo-Saxon culture long before the Anglo-Saxons ever came in contact with Christianity. By the way, the Christmas tree, now so common in our world, was equally common in pagan Rome and pagan Egypt. In Egypt, that tree was the palm tree. In Rome, it was the fir. The Egyptian palm tree denoted the pagan Messiah as Baal Tamar. The Roman fir referred to him as Baal Berith. The legend behind Nimrod, Semiramis, and Tammuz is what accounts for our custom of putting the Yule log into the fire on Christmas Eve and the appearance of the Christmas tree the next morning. It must be remembered that Tammuz was supposed to be the reincarnation of Nimrod. The dead god cut down to the ground and stripped of all his branches, represented the dead Nimrod. He was placed in the fire of destruction, but out of the fire sprang his reincarnation, Tammuz, and the idol that represented the small child was the young tree. The scripture passage that I read from Jeremiah chapter 10 actually describes the preparation of the tree idol used in the worship of Tammuz on each anniversary of his birth. This holiday was observed by the pagan peoples of Jeremiah's day at the time of the winter solstice, which was on or about our present December 25th. This same idol, prepared in the same way, appears in millions of modern homes on the same day of the year even today. We call it a Christmas tree. Many professing Christians honor this idol to Tammuz and in some way feel that they're paying homage to the Lord Jesus Christ by its presence. For one cutteth a tree out of the forest. They deck it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers that it move not. The world's present Christmas celebration is just the carrying on of the ancient custom of worshiping of Tammuz or Baal 
on the anniversary of the date of his birth. From the ancient Babylonian lore, we can begin to see how much the Babylonian mysteries have shaped our supposedly Christian customs. We can begin to see how Mystery Babylon, the mother of harlots, could easily hold sway over the earth after the true church is gone. Biblical prophecy will be fulfilled. I see that my time is about gone for today. We'll continue our study of Mystery Babylon on the next broadcast exactly where we leave off today. Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. It's a real privilege to come into your home or your car or your place of business with this message from God's Word. We're involved in a study that I call Mystery Babylon. This is a study of the ancient system of religious worship and of political goals that originated with Nimrod at the time of the rebellion at the Tower of Babel. Let's begin this sixth message of the series by reading the words of Judges, chapter 2, and verse 13. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtoreth. The ancient Babylonian mysteries are still very much a part of the culture and religion of the world today. Even within professing Christianity, we find that a great number of church customs, as well as a large part of church liturgy, are actually traceable to the ancient Babylonian mystery cult. All of our so-called Christian holidays have their origin outside of Christianity. This includes Christmas and Easter, along with the so-called minor Christian holidays. What is the origin of that spring holiday that we refer to as Easter? In its original form, did this holiday commemorate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ? What about the term Easter itself? Where do we get such a word, and what does it mean? It should be obvious to even a casual observer that Easter is not a Christian name. It is true that the word Easter does appear in Acts chapter 12 and verse 4 in the King James Version of the Bible. But this word appears there without authority since the Greek word for which the Easter is substituted is actually Pascha, which should be translated Passover. The 16th century translators of the King James Version were already so caught up in the tradition of Easter that they believed that Easter was a legitimate substitute for the word Passover. Actually, the name Easter is nothing else than an Anglicanized form of the name of the Babylonian Queen of Heaven, Ashtoreth or Ashtarti. This name, as pronounced by the people of Nineveh, is practically identical to the world, to, rather to the word we use today. That name has been found on the Assyrian monuments as Ishtar. The worship of Baal and Ashtaroth, Baal and Astarte, the son and mother, was introduced into the British Isles long before Christianity. It was as a part of Baal and Ishtar worship that the pagan priests, known as the Druids or the priests of the groves or the witches, came into existence. And this worship in groves is the practice that was so thoroughly condemned by God in the Old Testament. 
the customs that are now observed in our own country as a part of the holiday of Easter actually came to us from the pagan spring festival which originally commemorated the return to her people of Semiramis, the Babylonian queen of heaven. She supposedly survived a flood of waters in a craft that was represented by an egg. This legend seems to have the elements of truth associated with Noah and his survival of the great flood in the ark. But to the Babylonians, it was Semiramis, their queen of heaven, who survived the great flood. It would take more time than I have today to describe all of the pagan history of the Easter holiday. The popular practices that are still a part of the Easter celebration are sufficient to confirm that the origin of this holiday is Babylonian. The hot cross buns of Good Friday and the dyed eggs of Easter Sunday played a very big part in the ancient Chaldean celebrations just as they do today. The buns were known by that exact name. The word bun, B-U-H-N, is from the Chaldee, and it means a small cake. These buns were used in the worship of the Queen of Heaven, the goddess Ishtar. The symbol that we place on these Good Friday buns, which we call a cross, was also placed on those ancient Babylonian cakes, which were offered to the Queen of Heaven. Only the symbol was not a cross to the Babylonians. It was a Babylonian tau, the initial letter of the name Tammuz. It symbolized the sun born to the Queen of Heaven. The origin of our so-called Easter eggs is also clearly Babylonian. The ancient Druids bore an egg as the sacred emblem of their order. In the mysteries of Bacchus, that is, Tammuz or Baal, as celebrated in Athens, one part of the ceremony involved the consecration of a sacred egg. The Hindus of India worshipped a golden egg as a part of their spring festival. The usage of eggs in religious ceremonies was common in ancient China and Japan. The occult meaning of the mystic egg of Ishtar, in one of its aspects, has references to the ark. After Semiramis was deified as the Queen of Heaven, the legend that she had lived before the flood in a previous incarnation and that the human race survived through her became a part of Babylonian lore. The egg, the representation of the ark, became a pagan symbol of life and rebirth. The so-called Christian holiday of Easter is not at all Christian in its origin. It's simply the ancient spring festival of the Babylonians grafted into the practices of professing Christendom. The seasons of the celebration of the pagan spring festival and the Jewish Passover were almost identical. Our Lord Jesus Christ died on the day of the Jewish Passover. He was resurrected three days later at the Feast of the Firstfruits. It was an easy matter for Satan to associate the pagan spring festival with the resurrection of the true Messiah. Thus, the pagan practices have been Christianized. The Easter holiday practice of the world today is simply the carrying on of the pagan spring festival under the name of Christianity. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. 
It was from the mystery religion of Babylon that the patriarch Abraham was separated by the divine call. The nation which sprang from Abraham had a constant and continuing conflict with the Babylonian system until under Jezebel, the wife of King Ahab, the cultic system was grafted onto the apostate version of the religion of Israel practiced in the northern kingdom in Ahab's day. The practices of Babylonian worship was the cause of Israel's captivity by the Assyrians and of the disappearance of the northern kingdom. Judah was also polluted by this same abomination. The Baal worship mentioned by scripture in reporting Judah's apostasy was also just the Canaanitish form of the Babylonian mysteries. It was only through sending the southern kingdom into captivity to Babylon itself that God was able to cure Judah of her fondness for idolatry. Baal was the sun god, the life-giving one, and he was the one and the same as Tammuz. In about A.D. 51, the Apostle Paul wrote in his second epistle to the church in Thessalonica the following words, Remember ye not that when I was yet with you I told you these things? And now you know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now restraineth will restrain until he be taken out of the way. When Christ was born into the world, the Babylonian mystery system, that system which Paul referred to as the mystery of iniquity, was everywhere in evidence. It was practiced by a majority of the population everywhere except in those places where the word of God, as revealed in the Old Testament, was known and adhered to. So when Paul and the other early Christian missionaries set out on the great task of carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth, they found themselves everywhere confronted by Babylonian paganism in one form or another. During Paul's day, Babylon as a city had been long dead, but her mysteries had not died with her. They were very much alive and well. Scholars who have delved into the history of Babylon itself have traced the story of the survival of the mystery religion, at least in some of its aspects. It seems that when the city of Babylon and her temples were destroyed after the time of Nebuchadnezzar and his immediate successors, the high priest of the mystery system fled with a company of initiates and their sacred vessels and images to Pergamos. It was there in Pergamos that the serpent was set up as the emblem of the hidden wisdom of the Babylonian mystery system. From Pergamos, the mystery system later crossed the sea and immigrated to Italy, where the system set up headquarters on the Estrusian Plain. There the ancient cult was propagated under the name of the Estrusian Mysteries. Eventually, Rome became the headquarters of Babylonianism. The chief priests of the Roman system wore mitres shaped like the head of a fish. This symbol honored Dagon, the fish god of the ancient Philistines, called the Lord of Life, who was none other than our old friend Tammuz in a different manifestation. The chief priest, when established in Rome, took the title Pontifex Maximus, and this was imprinted on his mitre. The head of a large segment of the professing Christian church headquartered in Rome still bears this title today. Prophetic scripture written at the end of the first century predicts that the pagan system of Mystery Babylon will become a part of the professing Christian church. 
the seven letters of our Lord dictated through the Apostle Paul and recorded in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 provide a prophetic view of church history during the time of our Lord's bodily absence from this world. In the letter to the church at Thyatira, we find that the Lord rebukes that particular church with the words, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. In the prophetic view, the church at Thyatira represents the great church of the Middle Ages. It was and is the system that sprang from the blending of Christianity and paganism under Constantine the Great into that mixed system headquartered in Rome and stretching out all over the earth. To understand the Lord's reference to that woman Jezebel, we have to look back into Israel's history in the days of King Ahab. Jezebel was his pagan Phoenician queen, that wicked woman who carried the northern kingdom into Baal worship. Jezebel was adept in the art of mixing. She undertook to unite in one the religion of Israel and the religion of Babylon, which was practiced in Phoenicia. That's exactly what happened in the Roman system when it achieved its position of world power under Constantine the Great in the 4th century AD. That which emerged at the time of Constantine was a mixture of Babylonianism and Christianity and Judaism with the Babylonianism soon gaining the upper hand. This system is the mystery of iniquity. It's the ancient Babylonian mysteries continued under the name of Christianity down through these centuries of the inter-advent age. I see that my time is gone for today. We'll conclude this study of Mystery Babylon on the next broadcast. Thank you. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. For the past week, we've been involved in a study of the origin, the history, and the prophetic future of that system of pagan religious worship and of the one world empire political ambition that the Bible designates as Mystery Babylon. This is the seventh and final message in the study. Let's open today's study by reading Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Revelation chapter 17 opens with these words describing the Apostle John's invitation to view God's judgment upon the ecclesiastical system that God's word designates as Mystery Babylon. This judgment is in the prophetic future. It's obvious that the Babylonian mysteries are to spread over the earth and to become a dominating system in the earth during this age that intervenes between the two advents of our Lord Jesus Christ. During those centuries of church history, immediately after Constantine, the mystery of iniquity operated inside the organized Christian church, gained with such astounding effects that the Babylonian practices and teachings soon dominated. It was not long until the truth of the Holy Scriptures on many points had been totally obscured. In their place, 
idolatrous practices had been foisted upon the people as Christian sacraments, and Babylonian philosophy had taken the place of gospel instruction. It's rather surprising to some to find out that many things in modern professing Christianity are not of Christian origin at all, but rather are parts of the Babylonian mystery system in which worship was directed to Tammuz, the false messiah, and to Semiramis, his mother, the queen of heaven. The evidence testifying to this is overwhelming. Many of our so-called Christian traditions are Babylonian in origin, in nature, and in direction. The Babylonian religious system had many mystery rites as well as many immoral practices of worship. The Babylonian mystery cult was the origin of the custom of sprinkling holy water. Virgins were brought to the Babylonian ziggurats, that is, temples, and were dedicated to serve the Babylonian gods as religious prostitutes. The legend of the mother and child, the very center of the Babylonian system of worship, became also the center of apostate Christian worship. The mother, representing Semiramis, was pictured as the queen of heaven with the babe Tammuz in her arms. Linked with the central mystery of the mother and child were a great number of lesser mysteries. The hidden meaning of each rite and image was known only to the central initiates, but the outward forms of worship were practiced by all the people over which the system held sway. Among these lesser mysteries were doctrines of purgatorial purification after death. Salvation was by the practice of certain sacraments. There was a system of practicing priests, and these priests were able to offer priestly absolution. Recipients were sprinkled with holy water for cleansing and for blessing. Round cakes imprinted with the Babylonian Tau, the symbol of Tammuz, was offered to the Queen of Heaven. The practice of weeping for Tammuz for a period of 40 days before his supposed reincarnation was a part of all the pagan systems. To Semiramis, the egg was sacred, since it was supposed to symbolize her preservation and reincarnation. Also, the evergreen tree was chosen as the symbol of Tammuz. It was set up to honor his birth, which occurred at about the time of the winter solstice, that is, about December 25th. During the festival of the winter solstice, a boar's head was eaten in memory of the conflict of Ninus, or Nimrod, who was, according to legend, slain by a wild boar. Tammuz was accepted as the reincarnation of Nimrod. The Yule log was burned to represent the destruction of the dead god. The decorated evergreen tree was set up to symbolize the reincarnation of the dead god in the young god Tammuz, or Baal. Does this sound like practicing Christianity? It's not biblical Christianity. Rather, it's that amazing system which for over 1,000 years dominated most of professing Christianity. Only the great reformation of the 16th century brought a measure of deliverance. This is the religious system that will be left when our Lord Jesus Christ calls his true church out of this world. The effects of the ancient Babylonian mysteries on present-day Christendom, that is, professing Christianity, can be clearly seen. There are many sincere persons today who have been led to believe that unification of all peoples of the world in all things is the answer to the world's problems. 
They believe that it's God's will that men unite themselves with an earthly unity. These people hope and believe that a one-world government and a one-world unified religious system will bring in an era of righteousness and peace upon the earth. Men of our day seem to have forgotten, or perhaps more accurately, never to have known, that it was God himself who, at the Tower of Babel, separated the nations of the post-flood world. And it's God who, down through these centuries of the church age, who has allowed the separation of organized Christendom into small factions. This process of subdivision has been necessary because of the rapid spread of apostasy and evil that's possible within large united systems. Today's ecumenical movement in world politics and world religion is soundly refuted as to its being of God by God's own word. God has forewarned us that at the end of this age, a one-world government and a one-world church is to be organized. But scripture also clearly tells us that this unification is of man, energized of Satan, not of God. Once again, men are using bricks for stone and slime for mortar, as they did so long ago at the Tower of Babel. The early chapters of the book of Revelation reveal the sad happenings that will take place in the world once a one-world government has been established. A supreme world ruler will emerge. The world will be torn by war, famine, and plague. At least two-thirds of the world's population will die. Under the supreme antichrist ruler, all freedom will be taken from the people of the world. There will be no buying and selling without his mark. Satan will at last realize his age-old ambition. He, for a brief time, will rule all the peoples of the earth through his chosen man. At last, a Babylonian Nimrod will carry out Satan's bidding in the earth. It should be obvious to any true Christian who has even the slightest knowledge of the scriptures that unification of the world's religious systems, even the so-called Christian religious systems, would be a sad mistake. Already the present ecumenical movement has departed far from the teachings of the scriptures. This movement, given impetus by several decades of liberalism in our modern churches, sees no need for personal salvation. That salvation which scripture teaches comes through personal repentance and personal faith on the part of individual sinners in the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. In place of personal salvation, they have substituted a social, so-called, mass conversion. This is a concept that comes directly from the Babylonian mystery system. In modernism and ecumenicalism, the truth of personal sin and personal salvation is completely ignored. Satan's teaching has been substituted. Modern liberalism has far outdone that mixed system of paganism, Judaism, and Christianity that came from the mixing of Constantine the Great in the 4th century Rome in its departure from the truths given to us in God's holy word. Modern liberalism, with its one-world church movement, is playing directly into the hands of Satan. Satan will bring this movement to its full fruition during the tribulation period which will come after the true church and the restraining power of the Holy Spirit of God have been removed from the world. The final result of world religion is seen in Revelation chapter 17. The success of this movement is to be followed by the one world social order under the beast 
that's described in Revelation chapter 13. Thus, Nimrods and Semiramis dream of a one-world government and a one-world religion with a latter-day Nimrod, not God, as its head, will come to its fullest development in the Babylon of Revelation chapter 17 and 18. God will bring the judgments upon Mystery Babylon that have been pre-recorded in these two chapters of prophetic scripture. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. It will come. My time is almost gone for today. I've been greatly blessed in bringing you this series of messages on Mystery Babylon. I'll return on the next broadcast with another series of messages on the Bible stands. You've been listening to The Bible Stands, an independent faith ministry conducted as a worldwide radio missionary outreach by Bible expositor Wayne Carver. This program is dedicated to the upholding of the doctrines of the full verbal inspiration, the total inerrancy, and the absolute authority of the Holy Bible. The messages presented each day are available on cassette tape to those who support this ministry with their tax-deductible gifts and offerings. The Bible Stands is totally dependent upon the contributions of our radio listeners for its continuance on your station. You are invited to send your gifts and offerings, your request for cassette tapes, and your Bible questions to Wayne Carver in care of the Bible Stands radio broadcast. The Bible Stands is a faith ministry totally dependent upon the financial support of God's people for its continuing outreach. The program is sponsored by the Bible Stands radio broadcast. 6510 Spring Rose, San Antonio, Texas, 78249.